welcome to a special edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and we have a special guest today, Dr. Keith Smith from the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, and we are streaming live from Plano, Texas at the annual Free Market Medical Association Conference. So Dr. Smith, thanks for agreeing to interview us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, yeah, I really appreciate absolutely. it. Absolutely, appreciate it. So excited. And just, just tell us, just to start, kind of introduce yourself and, and talk about how you um, started, what started your journey into free market medicine and the surgery center of Oklahoma? Well, as a, as a pre-medical student, even growing up, I was a fan of the golden rule and mutually beneficial exchange, and I didn't understand how important of an underpinning that was in the free market at the time. Um, when I decided to go into medicine, I thought all of my interactions with patients would be mutually beneficial, that they would be glad that they came to see me, they'd be glad to have parted with whatever funds that I was paid, and, and we would all be happy and, you know, ride off from the rainbow together, and just mm -hmm. be all hunky-dory. And um, I, I just couldn't let go of the idea that it could be that way, and then only later understood that only a free and unfettered market, uh, competitive market, where the buyer is sovereign, the patient is sovereign, they have a choice, um, and they can come back and see you, or they can go see someone else, uh, and, and really, and really that we should all, as sellers in the marketplace, submit to the discipline of the free market, however harsh it is. So all of those things started to make sense to me, I think, when I had just started practice and I realized that patients did not think they were part of a mutually beneficial exchange, but primarily with the institution. They were kind of okay with the doctors, but patients were kind of not okay with the hospitals. And it became clear that the institutional price gougers, uh, the worst offenders of which were the not-for-profit hospitals, were really the bad guy in the mix. And as an anesthesiologist, I was never going to be able to shake that arrangement until I had control of the institution. So. Thing, long story short, there was an old burnout surgery center um, that a big corporation had almost ruined. It was really on the break of closing. And Steve Launching and I bought it on a hunting trip. And we paid everything we had and could borrow for it. But in retrospect, it wasn't that much. We just didn't have much at the time. But we went all in. We we doubled down and bought this facility, um, and decided we're we're going to make a go of this or go broke trying. And and that we've been guided then and ever since by only entering into exchanges that are mutually beneficial with patients, with the vendors, with our staff, with the surgeons we work with. So that really. It's a golden rule, you know, it's, it's that simple, really. That's what we follow. So basically what you're saying is, do you, do you think that medicine is like any is like any other free market and should, should work like any other free market, any other commodity? Well, it, it should. Uh, it doesn't. 
the, the government has spawned uh, 50% of the industry, which is socialized, and then they've been the midwife uh, for the cartel that comprises almost 50% of the balance. Um, the free market was at work predominantly before uh, the, the government decided Medicare was a good idea in 1965, which I would argue has been a disaster and a bankrupting disaster. Uh, people may not realize it now, but it is, uh, it's an entitlement that is, uh, is truly a, going to be a bankrupting event for the country. So up until that time, uh, physicians told patients what they thought they needed to be paid for different services. My great uncle was the only physician in a small town in Southwest Oklahoma. Uh, his home, uh, the upstairs was his where he lived, and the downstairs was the town hospital. <laughs> and if a patient said, I, I think you're charging me too much to be your patient, he couldn't look at them and say, there's nothing I can do about that. He could do everything about that, including not charge them at all. And the vast majority of hospitals were owned and controlled and founded and established by physicians. And physicians had not just control of, but responsibility for the care delivered and the price attached. So when the Hill Burton Act uh, was passed, which was a disaster, that uh, shot community hospitals in every county almost in the United States. And that was very disruptive. It was hard then for uh, the real hospitals, the one for which a market had been established to compete. Um, and then we started to see this sort of corporatization and government takeover of healthcare. It really began, began with the Hill Burton Act, which put community hospitals everywhere, even where they were needed. Well, I think we see the remnants of that now where there's some community hospitals in towns. They're really struggling because they're in towns that should never have been placed there in the first place. There's not a market for it. Right. How would you know? Right. Yeah. And yet, the, it's a government hospital, essentially, so they're never going to close. But they're losing millions of dollars a year. There, and, there's instances of that all over the nation. And I, I don't think it's any mistake that Medicare passed subsequent to Hill-Burton because now you've got all these government hospitals well, they don't want to charge patients. They want to plug directly into the trough. Right. So I don't think it was a coincidence that, well, we've put all these hospitals out there. How are we going to keep cash flowing through them? Well, let's just create a big government entitlement and let them plug into it. And that's that's what happened. So you bet. You know, right now, rural hospitals are struggling, partly because there may or may not be a market for them. One of the main reasons they're struggling are these big city death star hospitals that go into a small town, buy up all the primary care practices, and then upon threat of termination, tell those docs, you have to refer to the mothership. And eventually they choke that hospital out, and then they buy it for a salon, and then they control that rural area too. And just turn that little hospital into a kind of a way station on the way to the death star. So... That there's that going on too. Of course, the federal government is subsidizing all of this. Yep. So it's just, and then people look to the government to solve health care. They're like, ah, this is making you sick. It caused the problem, right? Absolutely. 
So I'm curious to know, Dr. Smith, what your idea to solve the problem is. I think I know the answer, but I would like you to share with our, our audience what you think the answer is for us to get healthcare back into um, the place it needs to be in the free market. Well, the first thing I think we have to acknowledge is the government caused this mess, and so we cannot look to them to solve it. Um, I would argue the system is working exactly as it was designed to work after all of these favors have been auctioned off in Washington, D.C., and people are making off like bandits. I said recently that uh, we shouldn't look to Uncle Sam to solve this caper when Uncle Sam's driving the getaway car. Right. So they're part and parcel of the problem. So that's part of the answer. Uh, part of the answer is to remove government from the equation because the state in all of its forms is and is the antithesis of free exchange. You know, the government is that entity whose ideas are so wonderful they have to be mandatory. Right. That's not mutually beneficial exchange. So if you pull the government out, and then you can begin to have free exchange between buyers and sellers, but they fix prices and they do all these things. So the best public policy at this point is the repeal, I believe, of prior public policy. In that way, we, we can be more free. I'm, I'm astonished that the free market movement has grown like it has in spite of the headwinds that the state has presented. It is uh, truly astonishing, <clears throat> and it's a tribute to the comment by the great economist Murray Rothbard, who reminded us all that the market is not just beautiful, it's powerful. I had a slide this morning I showed it's a little boy with a Hercules outfit on. You know, the market, is, it's a small part of what's going on. It is so powerful. It's bringing the worst price gougers to their knees. So the answer is to get government out as much as we can. The answer is for people to, in the business like me, to say, here is what I do, and here is what I believe I should be paid for it, and then let the market judge me. Uh, and the answer, too, is not necessarily the same answer for everyone. So whenever someone in Washington, and they do this now, they call me. And what should we do? And I tell them to simply stop. <laughs> Whatever it is you're thinking about doing, just don't do that unless it is repealing something you've done in the past. And then, like William Wallace says in Braveheart, and then leave town and beg for forgiveness at every little house on the way. Um, so, you know, what should we do? You should just stop. You should not do anything. I'm not interested in anyone's plan for my family's health care. We'll make our own plan. Or the market will throw a plan out and people will buy it or not. There are some, there are some heroes at this meeting um, that have different versions of different plans and we are all different. We all have different interests, preferences, and priorities. And so one plan may be a good fit for one family and another plan may be a good fit for another family, no plan may be a good fit for a family. So I don't believe in a one-size-fits-all solution. The only thing I think that you can stay 
in a blanket way is that to the extent that the vicious, dangerous state can be removed from this industry, an industry that I would argue that is far too important to involve the most corrupt machine ever invented by man, to the extent that government can be removed, then you will begin to see what we all want. That is more more accessibility, higher quality, lower prices. And I think Jay Kempton and I have shown that in Oklahoma and, and everywhere else in the country that are, that's adopting this approach. I agree with that. Was that harsh enough? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. I, I also feel that um, the market will will make changes if they know they can. I mean, I think we have some great. But they go out of business, right? Or they go out of business, right? Yeah. Exactly. And, and my thought is, no matter the industry, as uh, you know, you can look back in history when governments have tried to stop the free market, they never can. So eventually, a free market is going to come out, and it already is in healthcare, thanks to people like you, pioneers like you, and, and it is going to prevail. Um, the government madness might always be there in some form or another, but people need options, and they will find them. They'll find them in a black market. Exactly. And exactly. to some extent, some of that is already going on. I, I would argue people flying to Costa Rica and the Cayman Islands and uh, Mumbai, India to have their hip replaced. You could argue that's the black market. The government created it. The Canadians have made the sale of private medical care illegal, so they crossed the border. And there's a guy, I call him the Harriet Tubman of Canadian healthcare because he helps Canadians cross the border and secure the care unavailable to them there. And you could you could define a black market however you want to. That's that fits. It does. So they're doing something illegal in their country. It is. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I like to say the market is always at work. It's like gravity. You're either in sync with it and you're reaping its benefits or you're not in sync with it and then you get to experience its consequences, which typically are shortages, surpluses, wild cost overruns, and horrible quality. So I agree with you, the market, it it not it's not that it will always win, it's always operational. Okay. And God help you if you're not in sync with it, because then you're going to see all the all the stuff that the American people hate about medicine in this country is a result of a departure from market principles. That's right. Absolutely right. I mean, free markets will drive price, quality, and service, and and consumers will demand it. That's how markets work, and vendors react to it. That's just how markets work. That's right. So tell us a little bit about the history of the Free Market Medical Association. I mean, this is a great event. We're so happy to be here, and it's so great to be around pioneers like yourself and people with like minds. Um, I know the first time I interviewed you, like three years ago, I got into, after I interviewed you for just a few minutes, I realized I, I'm not so crazy. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> so how did the, the Free Market Medical Association come about? Well, it was Jay Kempton's idea. Um, after Jay Kempton and I met and the Kempton group started buying procedures from Surgery Center Oklahoma at the website prices that I listed, he offered that to his clients. Uh, because he asked me, can my clients buy at this price? And I 
said everybody can buy at this price. Uh, uh, my price is the same for everybody. And so we figured out a way to work together so that the exchange felt very much like a cash transaction. And then true to form, Jake Hempton did not keep that secret. He did not express any desire for exclusivity. And he told all of his competitors about me and told them how he was, how he pulled off this little caper of working with me on a very cash-like basis. I, I taught my competitors how to create bundles. And this is mind-blowing for a lot of people, but it, I think it really puts the focus on the mission-oriented style Jay has and that I have. Neither one of us is trying to get rich. When we realized how powerful and wonderful this could be, it just made sense for everyone in the country to know about it and to know that it worked and to know what the results were. Uh, and we've been vindicated. So as Jay reached out to his competitors, I reached out to my competitors and this whole idea began to spread. Jay said, I think we ought to start an association so people can network and with that will help us grow uh, this movement and what are there like 19 state chapters now we never ever in the beginning days would have thought uh, that it would be this big I mean are you kidding me Steve Forbes is keynoting has waived his honorarium this year two years ago Ron Paul keynoted it's just uh, I mean we have Tony Dale and David Goldhill speaking this year either one of which is a just serious keynote speaker at any event right and this conference is loaded with people like that so jay and i are you know we're we look at each other every year and just say okay but we're going to have another meeting and if it's a flop we'll we'll figure out you know where we're in the red and each write a check and make up the difference and we have yet to do that so you know, who forms an association that is, you know, it's in the black after its first year. And, and every year, uh, every year has been like that. We've met a lot of wonderful people. Uh, I am, I think I am now in a really interesting place with the association in that I'm the recipient of knowledge from the members instead of just being in that beginning sort of teaching mode you know you guys you know initially everybody thinks you're crazy and then you, you then they start to realize whoa there's something to this and so there was a kind of a convince mode uh, in teaching mode and i find myself now saying you, know, you just need to shut up and listen because what this person's doing is truly innovative and i haven't thought of that at all so it this organization is uh, is populated by some very innovative thinkers, uh, and I'm benefiting from them tremendously. I mean, how, how cool is that? Yeah, right. Well, one thing I know is that you know, with the, in in our professional lives, I think about uh, the people we see and we see at the surgery centers, and they will mention your name. It's like, oh yeah, we post our price online, just like uh, Surgery Center of Oklahoma, and I can tell that 
you know, you really have a passion for this or you would have tried to monopolize it and not share your experience, but you have a passion for free markets and free market medicine. That's why you're not scared to share your ideas, you know, because I mean, you want that to spread. Well, and it's funny too. think how far we've come. You know, think about the Gandhi saying where he says, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. <laughs> where, are you, where are you at? Well, I mean, that's been our experience. When I posted prices in 2009, there's no shortage of tinfoil hats that were put on my head. I mean, I was insane. I mean, they ignored us for a while, and then they laughed at us. Now, now people who don't post prices are being fined by Uncle Sam. Think of, just think of how the narrative has changed in a in a short period of time. I don't know what the normal time course of innovations is, but if posting prices online for medical procedures is considered an innovation, the idea that you will be fined if you don't do it in 10 or 12 years, I think that's that's pretty remarkable. That's pretty fast. I don't think innovations typically happen that fast. Um, but yeah, it's it has been, it has been a, a very wild ride and it's been very vindicating for me to see people copying what we've done. My favorite's probably UCLA because they didn't ask. There are people all over the country that have copied our website. And but they, I see ask, <laughs> they ask. And I said, of course you can. And here's the, the cell phone of my web designer. And yeah, of course you can copy it. And they're a little stunned, but thank you. But UCLA didn't ask. UCLA uh, and my web designers wanted me to sue them. And I said, no, it would be far too much fun to just make fun of them going forward. Because <laughs> if you sue them and there's a settlement, you have to shut your mouth. So, <laughs> you, you can search UCLA cash pricing. And there will be a strangely familiar website with this avatar and circles on it. <laughs> and uh, click on the procedure. It's word for word. So you know, that, they're, they're not posting prices because there's some warrior free marketeers they're feeling the heat. And that, but that's a compliment what you've done. Absolutely. UCLA copied you. I mean, how cool is that? When I do a PowerPoint, that's probably my favorite slide. <laughs> so I got to ask, because this is something that Sean and I have experienced personally, and um, I just got to ask, how complicated is putting your prices online? How complicated is your website? Was it really hard to accomplish? Well, it started with a question uh, of a surgeon. How much do you want? And of course, the surgeons had no idea how much they should or wanted to be paid or what the market would bear for a tonsillectomy, a gallbladder, a cruciate ligament reconstruction, parotidectomy. They had no idea, which was instructive because I told them, listen, you know, you've been brainwashed into thinking someone else needs to impose pricing on you. The time has come for you to declare what you are worth in the marketplace. I as an anesthesiologist am going to declare my worth. Um, we basically bill for our time to simplify things. Not exactly, but mostly. And then for the surgery center, the, the facility component basically time and materials. And you either know what it costs to run your business or you don't. You either know what it costs to have X number of employees there for so many hours 
or you don't. You know how much your utilities and insurance, all taxes, you, you know all that or you don't. So the facilities, time and materials, once I had the answer from the surgeon how much they wanted, I knew how long the procedure was going to take. So I could throw in my anesthesia fee and then you add those up. So it's not algebra. It's like simple addition. <laughs> so you add those up and then you come up with a price and I'll back up just a minute. The prices the surgeons gave me were all shockingly low. And I, I refused to accept their answer almost without exception. And I multiplied their answer by two or three many, many times because they really undervalued themselves, mm -hmm. I believed. So when you look at our website and you look at a knee arthroscopy at $3,740, you have to realize the portion of that that the surgeon is taking is multiples of what he makes with anybody else that pays him or her. So um, they love this. Surgery center's not trying to hit a grand slam. You know, we, we just want a base hit. Uh, anesthesia basically bills for our time. Uh, and that's how we did it. So it, there was a lot of time because the surgeons had to go home with this sort of homework assignment. First, I wanted to know, what is it that you like to do? Don't give me prices for surgeries that you hate to perform. Um, let's just not do that. I mean, give me, what is it that you want to do and how much do you want for it? And when there was variability, I typically took the highest number so that I knew anyone to whom I sent a referral would be happy with it. So anyhow, yeah, put it all together and I have this list of prices and I had to decide, well, am I gonna, am I gonna wait until there's 50? Am I gonna wait until there's 100 before we launch this? Am I gonna wait until there's 300? And I think we launched it with about 80. Um, and I don't know how many prices are on there now. It's huge. And then the sister company, Atlas Billing Company, um, it has a, it has as many or more prices on there for inpatient uh, procedures that we put together exactly the same way. So I would say it's not hard. Um, there are hospitals that say they can't do it. Um, in a way, they're correct, but uh, they're correct because they see problems with implementation, not the curation of a bundle price for a procedure. They 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 foresee difficulties then in implementing that bundle and paying the various participants. Uh, that's what Atlas Billing does. That's what Atlas Billing does for Surgery Center of Oklahoma, collects the single fee. So patients can just write one check. A Canadian can just write one check and then they're done. They don't have to pay us all different different types of payment. Or they can just give Bitcoin to Atlas or whatever. I mean, we accept that. So, and then Atlas pays everyone. Um, and I'm, I'm allowing hospital systems to use Atlas to overcome their objection to this can't be done. So there are hospital systems that are just shaking their head, not really sure, you know, how do we curate and implement bundles? And I'm doing that for them. And ironically, some of these hospitals are the ones that tried to put us out of business when we first opened. So 
uh, in the free market is it's what it is. And if they provide a great service and quality at a reasonable price, then join the party. Yeah, what a compliment to you that is. I mean, really, that they're trying to follow your model. I mean, it's a great compliment. And you know, one of the things about the hospital, you say they, they might not, you kind of alluded to, they might not be able to bundle price because I think maybe they don't know what their costs are. They literally probably don't know. You know, like you know, you talk about, you know, what your facility fee is, you know, what it costs for employees, you know, this, what costs for time. I don't know if the average hospital knows that. I think they do and they don't. I think now that we've had the rise of the administrator class, you know, like the Terminator, uh, you, have, you have these people who are petrified of assigning a price to a, an episode of care that is wrong on the low end and because they want to win every single time and that's why they want to inflict bills on people after the care episode so that they can add it all up and get everything kind of this really revenue driven approach not a not value driven approach but a revenue driven approach and if if you win on most of them and, and you lose a little on a few of them, then you're still okay. Um, but this mindset of I have to win on every mm -hmm. single case, it has to be in the black on every single one, is part of what's holding them up. Keep in mind, too, that if somebody says, I don't, I don't really know how to put a price on a cruciate ligament reconstruction because you just never know how that's going to go. Well, then you might not be very good at it because I know orthopedic hospitals and my facility where we do cruciate ligament reconstruction, we always know how they're going to go. There is the rarest exception where we run, but we always know about how long that's going to take and what is going to be required. We always know that, and that's because we're really good at that. There are some procedures we don't do because there's too much uncertainty there for us that Atlas farms out to someone else who has, doesn't have that uncertainty. So you know, it's, it's the best quality control measure you can have is to say, here's what I do, and here's the price I'm going to stick on it and stick to it. Well, and that's one of the things, you know, hospitals will you know, they have quality control officers and, and, and um, executives that talk about quality. And they'll always say that, you know, somebody that's given a less expensive price isn't going to give as good a quality. But you just said this, right? But you just said this. It's like you interview your surgeon. This is like, look, if you don't like doing this surgery, then let's not do it. So that alone, you only have the, the surgeons that do the surgeries they want to do, which is going to be the best quality for sure, because that's what they want to do. So they're, they're darn good at it. So your quality is going to be better than somebody that charges 10 times more in a hospital possibly. Well, and another layer, another filter is I decide which surgeons do which procedures for the most part, because most of our referrals come to surgery center Oklahoma, not to that surgeon. So if it comes to me and somebody says, so I have a, a child that, is not hearing at all, then I know who is really, really good at cochlear implants. So I connect them with that surgeon. So they're automatically going to the top of the class quality wise. And this whole idea that you get what you pay for, you know, in a functioning market, 
that's true sometimes, but this is not a functional market. So people need to remember high prices mean there's not much competition going on. And if there's not much competition going on, then you can be awful and still be busy. If prices are lower, that means somebody like me or another FMA member is in there mixing it up. And now when you have a competitive market in every industry, it is true. Quality soars and prices fall. So lower prices in this market, and my friend Jeff Rice at Healthcare Blue Book has backed me up on this, lower prices almost without exception indicate higher quality. And it's counterintuitive, but if you think through that, that I mean that and if you do a whole bunch of them, you have economies of scale too. So what is your so when you go to surgery center of Oklahoma, what is the most um, dramatic story you have of how you save a patient money um, at your surgery center and they got better care and better quality? I think the most dramatic is the young lady from California who had a an implanted defibrillator, uh, the battery for which had timed out. And so when they do that, there's their indicators. This one had a beep. So, and she really needed this defibrillator. I mean, it was put in because she needed it. So she worked at a hospital as an ultrasound tech. Uh, and because she was an employee, they gave her a really good deal and told her it would be $187,000 to replace her battery. So one of her family members uh, had heard about us and said, I think you all call these folks. Well, I did not have replace implantable defibrillator battery listed as a price on my website, but they reached out anyway and said, you know, shot in the dark here. But and I said, well, let me call you back. I'll make a couple of calls. So I called a friend of mine who's a cardiac surgeon. I said, listen, um, we can do this, right? He goes, of course we can. That's a chip shop. That's a 20-minute procedure. And I said, well, who who would be the, the rep we're going to buy this implant from, this new battery? He goes, well, here's his number. And he said, you know what, though? Let me call me and tell him what the deal is. We've got a cash buyer. And he said, we'll, we'll get a price on that. So I talked to the rep, and the rep says, well, I can give you that battery for $11,000. And I said, okay. And the surgeon told me how long it was going to take him. I asked him what his fee was. And he told me, and now you know the routine. And I knew anesthesia-wise what the time was. The time and materials is, other than the implant, is almost negligible for the facility. So I added it all up, and I told this lady, not knowing she was quoted 187000 I quoted her 13000 wow. And she wow. said, well, I don't have the money, but I'm going to get it. So she went to her family members. She had several siblings, and they all came up with the money and paid us $13,000, and we replaced her battery. When she got to the facility, she said she had decided if we weren't the solution, she was going to rob a bank because she was either going to get enough money in the robbery to pay for this, or she was going to be captured in which case the California prison system would have to do her surgery free. So that, that's where she was. And so we did it for 13, 
thousand, including everything. The family came up with all the money, and it was it was wonderful. That's yeah, probably the most. That's probably the most dramatic one. What a beautiful story! You've shared a lot of other ones over the years that are just you know you could share all day about how you've you know literally saved lives and and saved people from financial ruin because of what you do, and it's just it's just amazing. And I I just thank you for doing that. You're a pioneer in in free market medicine. And I, I, I first saw you on a John Stossel program 15 years ago, you know, probably maybe more than that. I, I don't really remember it. And I'm like, Hey, at the time, Jan and I, you know, we owned Moses like professional pharmacy. And at the time we had just stopped building insurance and, you know, and there were things going in our heads like, gosh, are we doing the right thing. And I'm like, Hey, there's a guy in Oklahoma doing it. Why can't we do it? So you've really been a role model for us. I appreciate it. Um, well, thank you. Yes, it's oh, it's invigorating and inspiring for me too to see others who are inspired by what we've done because uh, we all have to kind of stick together because the the empire is out there and they don't like what we're doing. Yeah, right. So as we wrap this up, Doctor Smith, what 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 do you have a passion for? What drives you? I think in your interview it, it was obvious, but go ahead and tell us what drives you. Yeah, I I think in the past. To be honest, I was driven by the wailing and screaming and howls from the price gouters as a result of what we had done. Uh, I was, I really was fueled by their misery uh, because they had tried so hard to put us out of business. I think now uh, I'm in a better place, and I think now what fuels me is seeing the success that everyone else is having who's first kind of put their toe in the water and then realize the water is fine let's go and you see it here this meeting is packed so yeah. i think that fuels me as much as anything awesome so if somebody has any questions about what you do or when they get a hold of you just to chat what's the best way to get a hold of you well, my email is all over the Surgery Center's website, and the website's surgerycenterok.com for anybody who wants to look at it. The sister company, atlasbillingcompany.com, is worth a look because there's there's inpatient pricing there. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter, and I'm on LinkedIn, and I, I try to not be too harsh on LinkedIn, but sometimes I can't help myself when somebody's just that wrong. So it's always always kind of fun, Twitter, LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Dr. Smith, thank you for your time so Thanks much. We appreciate you. We appreciate yeah, you. Your thank time. you all for having me. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in today. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. And as always, uh, we appreciate uh, our guest time. And Dr. Smith is just uh, um, such a did such a good job of, of meeting our goal of this podcast, which is to educate and empower consumers that they are in charge of their own health. And that also means financially, maybe especially financially. So um, just realize that you are in charge as a consumer. Tune in to Health Solutions Monday, uh, 12.30 to 1.30, again, as we stream live on my personal Facebook page. So thank you so much for tuning in today. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you.